Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to um, John chapter 16, verse 8. We're going to be there in a little while. And uh, But I always like to have you, I know we always have scriptures on the screen, but I always like to have you, I'm a, it's kind of a bugaboo for me, to at least one at one point look up one scripture verse in the middle of the message. So uh, today is John 16, 8. As you're looking that up, let's review our scripture verse for this week in John chapter uh, 14, verse 21, and let's read it together, Okay. Jesus is speaking, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14, 21. Let's read that one more time. I admit, I've been working on this. I don't have it memorized yet. I'm like, okay, Lord, this is the longest one so far, and it's a challenge to my little brain. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14, 21. So Jesus is teaching us two things, two principles right here in this scripture verse. The first one is this, love and obedience go together. We don't usually think of them that way because we think of obedience in negative terms. We think of obedience as subservient, subservient. but actually love and obedience go hand in hand. You can't have love without obedience. It's a part of it. Now, when you're in love, Obedience doesn't feel like a chore. It only feels like love. But nonetheless, it's part of the deal. For example, my wife asks me to take out the garbage. If I take out the garbage, technically speaking, I'm obeying her. She asked me, I did it. That's obedience. But it doesn't feel like I'm obeying her. Why? Because love is present. We, we love one another, we're married, we share a home together, we share a life together. It's just a part of the picture. I would propose even that, that obedience, when love is not present, obedience feels like a chore. When love is present, obedience just feels like love. And if you're having a hard time obeying, it's because you have a love problem, not an obedience problem. That, that a real test, if you will, of the maturity of your love is by how much obedience feels like a chore. The more that obedience feels like a chore, the less mature your love. If you think about it. You know, you say, well, I'm just selfish. You know, there's, you know, there's selfishness. Selfishness gets in the way of love. You're right. But can I tell you that the way to defeat selfishness is not to try to defeat selfishness. The way to defeat selfishness is to find something greater to love. When you find something greater to love, self goes right out the window. We do all kinds of crazy things in the name of love, don't we? 
So Jesus puts love and obedience together. The second thing that Jesus is emphasizing in this scripture is that when you obey him, it actually opens you up to see him in ways you hadn't before, that he's waiting to reveal himself to you as you obey him, as you experience him, you learn about him. You see, um, think about some of the characters in the Bible that we just love so much. Like uh, you got Joshua and the people of Israel in the Battle of Jericho, the one of the craziest military moves of all time. Let's just march my army in silence around the city walls for seven days. And ask, but, but what did Joshua and the people of Israel learn about God as a result of that experience that they would not have learned about God had they not obeyed him in that way? Think about Peter walking on water towards Jesus. And we love to talk about that story. And, you know, then he, then he falters in his faith and he starts to sink and all that sort of thing. But, but ask this question, what did Peter learn about God as a result of that experience that the other 11 guys who stayed in the boat never saw. You see, God is a God of the nuts and bolts. He's a God of the nitty-gritty. God refuses to be locked away in the halls of academia. He refuses to be kept stuffed in some musty old book somewhere. God is a God of the nitty-gritty, of the real stuff of life. And he wants for you to experience him and to know him in the reality of school and work and home and all of that stuff. You know, so kids, like, your, your school's driving you nuts, I know it is these days. Online, in person, ha, 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 back and forth. Things are so topsy-turvy for kids these days. God is waiting to reveal himself to you in the midst of all that craziness. What if, what if, what if, I know it's crazy and I'd love to take away all the craziness in one swoop, but, but what if, instead of trying to take away the craziness, what if instead I just... Try to look to see if I can experience God in the middle of this. Like maybe God wants to show you something in the middle of all of this jazz that's going on. See? Like you have this, like your marriage is rocky and it's rough. What if God is waiting to reveal himself in that roughness? What if there's something about God that he wants you to experience in the middle of that? See? I mean, you got, you got drunk last night. Okay, listen, God's not in favor of your drunkenness. But can I tell you that even in the struggle, God wants you to see him, right? That there are things about God that you can see, you can learn. See, your God is the God of the nuts and bolts. Your God wants you to experience him in the, in the ebb and the flow of everyday life. So in the Bible, we have these names that are given for God, and there's a bunch of different names. And if you think about the names that are given for God, every one of those names in the Bible was birthed out of a real-life experience, many of them negative, by the way. I, as a matter of fact, I can't think of one of them that's positive. Virtually all of them came out of some negative, tough, tough experience. I mean, if you, uh, in one of the things, it's in your student workbook, in the Experiencing God workbook. Actually, it's at the very back of the workbook. 
uh, I think like the last two pages of your workbook, there are two full pages of the names of God. The names of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all these names that are given to God in the Bible. It's overwhelming, to be truthful. I, I never knew there were that many names of God. It's, wow, it's amazing, the list. Um, I, I was brought to tears, actually, as I was just reading the list. I thought, wow, God, you're an amazing God. But, you know, theologians, theologians have three primary names for God in the Bible. So we have God is Yahweh or Jehovah. You know that the name Jehovah was the name that ancient Jews came up with because they didn't want to use the name Yahweh in vain. So we say Jehovah instead of Yahweh. And so, that's, so they're the same, Yahweh, Jehovah. Yahweh means I am. It's the great I am, God. And then you have Elohim, means God Almighty. And then you have Adonai, which means Lord, Lord Almighty. So Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, these are the three primary names for God in Scripture. But, and they're used hundreds of times, those three, but these other names of God are also used. There's more than a hundred other names for God in Scripture, and every one of them was birthed out of some kind of real-life experience. Let me just, I'm just obviously not going to read all of them, but here's a sampling of them. You've got Job. Job, that great suffering man, who learned in the midst of his suffering that God is my advocate. Job 16, verse 19. Then you have Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Oh, Jeremiah had such a difficult, he had the ministry that no pastor would ever want to have. And Jeremiah learned in the middle of that, that God is my comforter. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18. Then you've got David, David hiding out in a cave because his life was being threatened. People wanted to kill him. And there's David writing in his journal, Psalms 46, verse 1. That's what we call it. God is my refuge, my strength. Another time, David, another tough boy, David had a rough one. Another rough time in David's life, Psalms 18, verse 2, David says, God is my rock. You got Genesis 16, verse 13, Hagar. Hagar's a slave, a slave woman, and she's mistreated by her slave master. And she runs, and she escapes, and she finds herself in a desert. She finds herself in a hard, hard place. Her life is threatened, and it's there that Hagar discovers, God sees me. He's... Jehovah Roy, God sees me. Genesis 16, verse 13. You've got Abraham, one last one. Abraham, we know the story perhaps of Abraham having to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. His only son, Abraham, waited a hundred years to have Isaac. And then Isaac is now a teenager, and God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham doesn't understand it, but he does it anyway. And he goes all the way up right to the very moment where he's going to plunge the knife into his son's chest. And there God stops him. And then they hear the sound of bleeding in the bushes, and they notice there's a lamb, ram, stuck in the bush. And 
Abraham unties his son. They put the ram in place of his son. They sacrificed the ram in place of Isaac. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for you and for me. You and I are the Isaac in this picture. We're the ones worthy of death, and Jesus is the substitute for you and for me. He died for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice for us. See? And it's there that Abraham, it's there that Abraham came to this conclusion. It's there he discovered this about God. He goes, huh, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, is what he said. God is my provider, Jehovah Jireh. And on and on and on it goes through the pages of Scripture, over a hundred different names given to God. Every one of them birthed out a personal experience, and to my knowledge, every one of them birthed out of a painful personal experience. This is how God is discovered. Do you see that God desires for you to know him through experience, personal experience? Now, all of this begs a question. It's an awkward question. And that's this, of the things that you know about God, how many of them are things you've only read about in a book or heard at church? And how many of those are things that you personally have experienced? You can attach an event from your life to that name for God. I want to just kind of challenge you to do a little um, exercise. I think that it'll benefit you a lot. Take a piece of paper and write down every name for God that you can think of. Don't, don't use your Bibles for this. This is just you and a piece of paper. Write down every name for God that you can think of, you know? Oh, he's, he's kind. He's comforter. He's um, strong. He's my rock. He's my refuge and my strength. And, and he's my savior. And he's my, he forgives me. And he's compassionate. And he's love. We just, Valentine's Day, sing about his love, right? Okay, so now make a list of all of the things, those things that you know about God. And now, ask yourself, which of those things have I only read about in a book or heard at church, and which of those things do I know from personal experience? I can actually literally attach an event to that. I don't mean to be negative, but my guess is that for most of us, most of the things that we know about God, we've only heard about in church, read about in a book. And that is the very reason, the heart of why we as a church are going through experiencing God. Because the God of the universe wants you to know him by experience. He does not want you to know him in a book. He does not want you to know about him. He wants you to know about him, know him, not know about, know him in experience. You know, if I say to you, oh, yeah, I, I know Karis. She's a really great gal. You say, oh, really? Wow, so how often do you hang out? Oh, I've, I've never actually personally met her. <laughs> but I, I know her. I mean, she's really a great, you'd say, I don't think you know Karis. And yet, how many of us 
say the same thing about our relationship with God. Oh yeah, I've known God for 30 years. Really? How, how often have you hung out with him? Like, well, I've never actually. <laughs> so how, how often do you see him? How often do you hear him? Well, I've never, I've never. I, see what I mean? My friends, it is time for your relationship with God to jump off the page of a book and into real life. The God of the universe wants you to experience him. Do you see the scripture verse that Jesus, you see our, our memory verse for this week, it's so important. Jesus said, if you obey me, then I'll reveal myself to you. Like literally this is how it works. As I walk in obedience with God, I take steps of faith and obedience to God. It's then that I discover all of the awesome things that God is. Now, this Brings us to a question. You say, okay, great. Well, how do I know then if it's God or not? Like, how can I tell if I'm experiencing God? It's a great question. Legit question. It's a big question. And it's actually going to take us weeks and we're, you know, to, to uncover that question. But this morning, I can answer a piece of that question. And the piece of that question that we can answer is this. What are the eight things that only God does? If I can identify things that only God does, then when I see those things, I know that's God. Does this make sense? So would you like to know those eight things? Like, I can't tell you which college to go to. You know, don't you wish we had our, we have our, we have young men, young men are meeting on, on Wednesday nights who, Gary Martino and I are leading a group of young guys through experiencing God. And, you know, that was our big question this past week was like, well, which college, you know, how do I know? Like, does God want me to, wouldn't it be great if there was a Bible verse that said, go to Yukon, go to Central, you know, wouldn't that be great? But there's not, there's not a Bible verse for that. And so, those decisions are a little more complicated, but these you can take to the bank. These are easy. Here's eight easy ones. Only God does these. You ready? All right. And by the way, I'm not making these up. These are on page 83 in your student workbook. So you can use that for reference if you'd like. I'm just uh, kind of pointing this out to us. The first one that we know that only God does is God causes people to seek him. He causes people to seek him. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. You see that? So if I'm seeking him, what's really happening? He's drawing me. From my perspective, it looks like I'm seeking him. From his perspective, he's drawing me. You know, we have a, one of the groups, so I'm, in, I'm leading or part of four Experiencing God groups, which means I, I'm uh, busy these days. It also means we need more leaders, just so I'm putting a, put a plug in there. So one of the groups that I'm, I'm leading, there's a guy in that group who said a couple weeks ago, he said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about God a lot lately. Now, this is a young man who has never been to church. It's so, it's so cool. We got him his first Bible because he wants to be a part of experiencing God. So he's got his first Bible, got experiencing God. And he says, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about God more. Now, can I tell you, that's God at work. 
You know, he doesn't know it, obviously. I mean, he's, he's not far enough along in his walk with God to see that at all yet. I see it. This is God at work. And, and he doesn't realize it, but I'll tell you what, we'll have a whole group just for him. Because God's on the move in his life. And it's so exciting. Why? Because God draws us. He gives you the desire to seek him. You know, if you have a couple, some young couple, some couple comes to you and says, hey, we want to study the Bible together. Can you study the Bible with us? Ah, you don't have to question that. God's on the move because God causes us to seek him. See this? That's the first thing God does, and only God does that. The second thing that only God does is only God reveals spiritual truth. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he'll, he'll teach you. Can we have this next slide? I, I'm not sure if we... I need these slides. Okay, thank you. So John chapter 14, verse 26, um, God, Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have taught you. Like the Holy Spirit teaches them. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17... I love this instance. Jesus asks his disciples, he says, hey guys, who do people say I am? They're like, ah, some people think you're John the Baptist, some people think you're this, you're that. Peter goes, oh, you're the Messiah. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you ain't that smart, buddy. That did not come from you. That came from my father. He revealed it to you. You know that I'm the Messiah because God the Father showed you that I'm the Messiah. See, God, God reveals spiritual truth. You know, you got a friend that comes to you and says, like I'm just, for an example, you have a friend that comes to you and says, you know, I don't think... I don't think that this whole universe just happened by accident. You know, I don't believe in evolution. I don't, I mean, I, I don't even know what it is out there, but I know it can't, you know, it just can't be an accident. You know what? Pay attention. That's God. How does this person come to this truth? God has revealed this truth to them. They might not know. They're not going to put words to it, but now you know, and now you can be paying attention. Mm, I think God's on the work, on the move here. Third thing that only God does is, and this is found in John 16, verse 18. So if you're there, let's just read it. And there's actually the next three things are found in John 16, verse 18. Now, or verse 8, rather. Now, I'll admit, I don't, I don't like this version, but I'm going to read it because it's the one I have. But uh, when he comes, when the Spirit comes... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Some versions talk about, use the word convicts, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I kind of like that wording better um, myself. It's just, I guess, what I'm used to. But what does it mean? The first thing that God, only God does is he convicts us of sin. 
somebody comes to the conviction that a certain behavior in their life is wrong, it's a sin, guess who gave them that revelation? Who? Not a trick question. God did it. Only God does that. Now listen, this verse, this truth really shapes how we minister as a church, honestly. Because you'll notice that I don't often preach, and we don't often around here, preach against sins, certain sins, you know? Why? Because the Holy Spirit does a great job at that. I've learned that if, if I try to do it, if we try to preach against sin, we just come off as judgmental jerks. But when the Holy Spirit does it, <laughs> get out of the way. Change is happening. And we've seen it over and over and over and over again in our ministry. You create the kind of atmosphere where God's Spirit can move and work, and you'll begin to see people start cleaning up all kinds of bad behavior. Because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. This is his work. The second thing that he does that Jesus teaches us, which is number four, God convicts us of righteousness. And what that means is this, that it's God that convinces a person that they cannot be good enough for him. That I cannot make myself good enough for God. I need righteousness. And that's something that I can't earn on my own. I can't make that, man manufacture it. So therefore, I need someone else to give it to me. This is, this is a work of God in a person's life. Somebody that comes to this conclusion that I can't make myself good enough for God. Like, that's a revelation that only God brings in a person's heart. And then the third thing that Jesus says God does, the Holy Spirit does, is he convicts us of judgment. Judgment. That there comes a day, and that God has already determined the day, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, that on that day of judgment, you stand before him alone. I stand before him alone. I cannot stand there with my excuses, and I cannot stand there and blame shift well, so-and-so this and so-and-so that, it is me with God, and God evaluates my life, every aspect of it. And on that day, if I'm not squared up, then I am condemned. I stand condemned for all of eternity in hell, judged along with the devil and his demons forever and ever in eternal torment. And damnation. See, it's a, God brings us to that understanding. Judgment is a reality. And therefore, of course, friends, you understand, this is why Jesus. This is exactly why Jesus. Because you can't make yourself good enough to pass that day. You can't. No matter how hard you try, there's always going to be a skeleton somewhere in your closet. And God's going to see it. The only one who can cover you completely, the only one who can make you right in the eyes of God is Jesus. And that's why we need him as our Savior. But the truth of that, the revelation of that truth, where does that come from? God. That's a work of God in a person's heart. It's... So when you see that, when you hear people talking like that, you know when you're in a conversation and it kind of turns like that, boy, 
pay attention. Sounds like the Lord's on the move. I want to I be a part of that one. The numbers, the sixth, the sixth thing that only God does. God reveals himself as your father. Luke chapter 10, verse 22. No one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Hmm. So my experience of God as father comes to me by revelation. It, it's a work of God in my life. It's not something I muster up. Mm -mm. I know that a lot of people struggle with God as father. Have you ever tried asking him to reveal himself to you as father? Like, skip the counseling. I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but you know what I mean? Like, because it's a revelation. It's not something that you get counseled into. It's not something that you sing enough songs into. It's a revelation. God, re Jesus reveals the Father to you. So have you thought about simply asking him to reveal himself as your Father? Huh, life-changing. You know, it's simple when God's on the move, isn't it? I tell you, we've said it before, God can do more in a minute than you and I can do in a lifetime. And, and can I tell you, one of the things that I've been praying for lately for our church has been, this is not my notes at all, one of the things I've been praying for as a church lately is, I, I, you know, I, I believe very much in process. I do. You know, God takes us through processes of healing. I absolutely do. Praise God for that. But I also believe that sometimes God does that. And, and I've just been asking the Lord for that. You know, I know like Jody in our youth ministry, man, our kids are struggling so much and so much time is spent counseling kids and stuff. I'm just praying like, can we just, God, please, would you just start showing up? Like, just start bringing revelation, you know? Just start breaking off this crud that's on our kids and just boom, because I know God can do that. Like, I honor the process. I do, but oh, Lord, please, would you please, Lord, a few mm, <laughs> would be awesome. How's that? I don't, I don't even have a word for that. What's the word for that? <clears throat> I don't, whatever that is, that's what I'm praying for, God. That's the, mm. So then, number seven, the seventh thing that only God does so God gives us the desire, God reveals himself as Father, God gives us the desire to please him. Huh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it's God. Who is it? God. It's God. God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God. You know, the reason why you are committing to 12, 13 weeks of your life in a small group to experiencing God, you know why? God. Why are you desiring to seek after God and to experience God in this way? God. You're witnessing a work of God in your own life. Isn't that something? I just hope you find this encouraging. God's on the move in your life, my friend. And then eighth thing and last thing is this. Your ability to believe in Jesus is a gift from God. It comes from him. In, in John chapter 6, verse 65, 
Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has, look at that word, enabled him. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Um, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is, look at that, not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You thought, I thought I had the faith. No, God gave you the faith that you exercise to believe in him. Do you see that? It's amazing. So God has given you the ability to believe in Jesus as your Savior. Like that is a work of God. When you see somebody moving in that direction, you know God's at work. So here's eight things. Eight things that only God does. He causes people to seek him. He reveals spiritual truth. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of judgment. He reveals that he is Father. He gives you the desire to please him. He gives you the ability to believe in Jesus for salvation. Eight things that only God does. So if you see any of these eight things happening, pay attention because God is on the move. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. So now, with that, I just want to kind of close this out with a word of correction and then a word of caution. Because this is, I, I think this stuff is so powerful. It really is. I mean, really, if we get a hold of this, it literally will change your life. Um, so a word of correction and a word of caution. First, the word of correction. We need to clear up a little bit of bad theology, if you will. See where I'm going with this? We like to say things like, I found Jesus. I found God. I'm, 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 I'm seeking God. Now, based on what we've just learned this morning, we know that's not true, do we? I didn't find God. He found me. And I'm not seeking after him. He's drawing me. This is a work of God in my life. I like what Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, this verse is actually part of our week four study. And it says this, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've turned, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. This is a really depressing Bible verse. It's really bad. But do you see the truth is this, that this is our human condition. We were dead apart from Christ, and dead people don't do anything. That's what the Bible teaches us. You're, you're dead in your sins. And so any, any kind of awakening that takes place in your life is a work of God. Now, only clear this up. You say, well, that must mean that my friend Joe, that God must not love him, God must not be working in his life. Oh, don't, don't assume that, because we also have the power to choose. So I can either, it's only one of two things is happening. If, a, if is the, either, either God is not revealing himself, God's not on the move, which I don't believe that is happening, or we're refusing to see it in our own rebellion, in our own pride. 
we, we blinded ourselves to it. I, so, so God is moving. God, I believe with all my heart that God wills that none should perish, Scripture says, that God is at work in every human heart. He's, Ecclesiastes says he's put eternity into the hearts of men, but they don't understand it. You know, that, I mean, on and on and on we go in Scripture. God's heart is for every single human being. He desires everyone to know him, everyone to be in right relationship with him. That's his heart. And I believe with all my heart that God is on the move in every person's life. And part of what you and I get to do, honestly, part of our privilege and joy is to be able to identify God at work in people's lives and to encourage them with that. I love, I love being able to do that, to, talk, to be talking to somebody and say, man, I think God's got your number, buddy. Really, you think? Yeah, he's got your number. You better start answering. That's all I got to say because he's working over there, right? And it's, yeah. and it's so cool to be able to show that to people. Like, do you see God working in your life? This is God. Ah, it's one of the great privileges that we have. So that's the first one is let's just a little word of correction. I, I, didn't, I didn't go looking for God. He found me. Thank you, Jesus. He's always the initiator. He, we love because he first loved us. Second thing, though, is a word of correction or, or caution, caution, word of caution. And that's this. We need to caution ourselves against the extremes. So there's two extremes that we can jump into with the knowledge of what we've just talked about. One is the temptation to rescue people from God's work. And I'll explain more in a second. And then the other is the temptation to help God out. Okay? So let's just explain these for a second. First, the temptation to, to rescue people from God's work. When God starts to work in a person's life, when God's working, it can be very messy and very uncomfortable. When you see somebody under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sin, it can be very awkward. Not, not for them, for you. Because you feel bad. Like, oh. And the temptation is to rescue them and somehow get them off God's hook. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be willing to engage in the awkward and uncomfortableness let me give you a quick story. Many years ago, Karis and I were in youth ministry. We had one night, there was a young man named Eric who came under the conviction of the Spirit. God was doing a great work in this little kid's life. And he was crying and he was weeping. He was really upset because he saw, he saw his sin. And that night he went home from youth group and he was still upset. And his mother asked him what was going on and, and he told her, you know how she responded? Oh, that Doug and Karis, they don't have teenagers. They don't know what it's like to be a teen. You're a good boy. You're not a sinner. You're a good boy. You're a good boy. How do we know that? Because she called us the next day to say that her son would not be coming to youth group anymore because he's a, quote, good boy and doesn't need it. Do you see what happened? Mama Bear got very uncomfortable because God is at work in her son's life and he is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and it is awkward and it's messy and, oh, scary maybe even. 
And instead of taking her son to Jesus that night, she placated him and got him off the hook. She rescued him. And I, honestly, I don't even know to this day, he'd, be, he'd probably be in his 40s right about now. I don't even think he's walking with Jesus now. So you, do you see what happened? We, we need to really guard against the temptation to rescue somebody. Because when God is at work in a person's life, it can be messy. It can be hard. It can be awkward. It can be tough. And, and, and it's, it's not our job to get them off the hook. And it's not our job to dig the hook in deeper. It's just, we just, we pray, we take them to Jesus, you know? Take them to Jesus, he's the answer. We want to caution against the other extreme, though. The other extreme is the temptation to help God out. Because now you see these eight things today, and now you're armed, you know, and dangerous. And you think, oh, great. So now you're going to be on the lookout, and every time you see this, you're at the coffee shop or something, jump in, dog pile. God's at work. Get saved. You know, that's, no, no. I'll tell you another story. Uh, years ago, again, we were leading a small group, my wife and I, and we had a lady in the group, and her husband did not come to the small group. And so I arranged to have lunch with him one day, and he had not given his heart to Jesus yet. And uh, so we had lunch, and we're sitting there, we're just having lunch. You know, I wanted to get to know the guy. And, and, and he bursts out in the lunch, he goes, listen, I know what you're trying to do. I'm not going to that small group. My wife wants me to go, but I'm not going to that small group. I'm like, all right, okay. I just kept eating my lunch, we're just talking. He goes, listen. I know, I don't do the touchy-feely stuff. I just want you to, I don't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go to that group. I'm not doing the touchy-feely stuff. I said, all right. I just, I'm eating lunch, you know? <laughs> you know? And then there was a third time. He goes, listen, I know everybody, you get in that circle and everybody talks. Listen, I'm not, if I come, I'm not talking. You see where he's going? I saw it too. I was like, okay, yep, I'm not fighting this one. I said, okay. Well, you're, you know, I, you're always welcome, of course, always welcome. And so he came, and uh, that week, that week came to, came to the group for the first time, never stopped. And actually, at the end of the night, he was joking with everybody because we were having snacks, you know. And he's joking, and he goes, I, I said I wasn't going to talk. I think I talked more than anybody else tonight. <laughs> he's talking the whole time. And eventually, Dana, he did. He gave his heart to Jesus and still walking with the Lord today. So praise God for that. But you see how, like, you know, the temptation is to help God, right? I guess what I'm saying is in that, in that lunch, I can tell you what I did not do. I did not defend our small group. Oh, it really is great. It's not that bad. I don't think you see it right. I didn't defend it. I, I didn't defend Jesus. I didn't defend his wife. I, I don't have excuses. I'm not going to push them. I'm not arguing with them. I'm not, def you know. I just let them talk. Why? Because God's working. No need, no need for me to help God out in that conversation. I don't need to argue him into the kingdom. Just let, he's doing it. He, he did a great job himself. I didn't have to do anything. See, our temptation sometimes is to do that, to jump in, and we want to be defensive, and we want to, you know, argue, we want to sh share our five Bible verses, and here's three points why you're wrong, and why I'm right, and 
Just watch, pray, always point to Jesus, wait, because when God's on the move, mm, it's beautiful. See, those are two extremes we want to just avoid when we know that this is God at work. I don't, I don't want to rescue somebody and try to take them off God's hook because sometimes it's uncomfortable. And I also don't want to help God out and somehow be God's PR department and try to you know, dress it up. That's not my job. I, my job is to pray, be faithful, keep pointing them to Jesus, and be aware of God on the move. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.